if you'd like to grab your Bibles, um, we're going to be in John 20 this morning. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be black um, hardcover Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, that's on page 906 in those Bibles, I believe. Uh, so to set the context a little bit, um, we're coming out of Palm Sunday. So after that triumphal entry, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he has the Passover meal. He institutes that practice of communion. After that Passover meal, Jesus is arrested. There's a farce of a trial that takes place in front of the Jewish leaders. They just wanted him gone. There was a farce of a hearing in front of the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate just wanted everybody to calm down and go home. He was trying to avoid a riot. And so at the end of that miscarriage of justice, Christ was crucified. He was buried. He was crucified on the eve of the Sabbath. And so he was buried in haste. For the Jewish law dictated that there was no work allowed from sundown on the day before the Sabbath, and especially on this Passover Sabbath. So he was buried in haste. And the Sabbath went by. And at the end of that time of rest, some of the women who were closest to Jesus wanted to go back and they wanted to make sure that the men who had buried him had done a sufficiently proper job of it. And so we pick up the narrative here in John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, all of this is written, it says down in, uh, in verse 30, for a particular purpose. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has written this whole account, this whole book, all of these stories about Jesus for one purpose, so that we may believe and that by believing we may have life. So there's a call here, this call to belief, this call to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that, that, that Christ, that's a title. That's a, that is an honorary title. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's rendered the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. See, the Jews, for all of their existence, had been preparing for the Messiah, the Savior. They had been preparing for a greater David who would deliver them from their slavery. They were preparing for this greater Passover lamb who would not only deliver them from their slavery to sin, but preserve them from the judgment that was their due. They had been preparing for this suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the Christ, the greater David, the greater Moses that they were waiting for, the greater Joseph, the greater Noah, the greater Adam. And John writes all of this, that we would know that all of the law and the prophets all of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures that they had spent their lives studying, find their fulfillment. They find their culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. All of their faith for thousands of years was pointing to him. 
He was the Christ. And he was not just a great man. He wasn't just a king. He wasn't just a savior for that day. But in the beginning of the book of John, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's using that picture of a Passover lamb who was slain for the salvation of his people and pointing out, this is the lamb. But not the lamb to atone for a single person's sin. Not the lamb to atone for a single family's sin. But for the whole world, for all eternity. He was the offering of the only beloved son, that Abraham had been willing to make. He was the sacrificial lamb offered up, not by the father of the family, but by the father of all people on behalf of his children. It says in Romans 1 that he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. It was Christ's resurrection that was the ultimate demonstration of this power. It was the ultimate demonstration of the fact that he is indeed the son of God. And so John writes this gospel account that we today might believe that God had a plan from all eternity past for our salvation from our sin. And that this plan was Jesus, our Christ our Messiah. And so he's written this book. He's written this gospel to prove this to us by showing us Christ's works, his miracles that could only be enacted by divine power. He shows us the way that Christ walked, the way that he lived with integrity in everything that he did, living perfectly without blame. John shows us Christ's words, what he taught us about how the world works. And he was there to see these things firsthand, and he could have kept them for himself. But he wrote these things down. As it says in verse 31, these are written so that you, so that you and I might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And that call to belief, that call to understanding is made with a promise as well. What is that promise? That you may have life in his name. There are a few things that are more universal than the fear of death, right? Every person, everywhere, regardless of your culture, regardless of your upbringing, Regardless of your level of understanding, there's a certain amount of fear and trepidation that comes when we think about death. It's even perhaps more universal than um, something as as basic as hunger, because that can vary across culture and across socioeconomic lines, but everybody faces death in some fashion. But death is not a root cause. Death 
is an effect. Death is a consequence. It's an effect and it's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of our failure as individuals and our failure as a people to live up to that perfect standard that God has set in action. It's a failure to live up to that perfect standard in attitude and in nature. So everything that we do, everything that we think that fights against who God is, all of these things are sin. And we choose sin because we think we know better, that we are more capable of understanding what we are supposed to be and what we are supposed to do than God is. It says in the book of Romans that all man, all of mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have failed to live up to that standard that has been set for us. And that the wages for that sin, the penalty that we pay for our lack of compliance with that is death. And Paul uses that metaphor as we've been studying in Ephesians. He says that we are, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we are dead. We are so enslaved to our sin that we are unable to free ourselves no matter how hard we try. We can drown out our our knowledge of this through drugs and alcohol. We can learn to tune it out through the power of positive thinking. Or we can embrace it in a nihilism. But the reality is that we are broken. We are not enough. And we never can be enough to fix ourselves. And furthermore, no other person who is broken like we are could ever hope to fix us for us. And so it's in light of this reality that Paul writes in Romans 7, and he says, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this life of sin and death? It says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that God has the ability to raise us to life out of our death in sin. So if Christ was raised out of death on a cross, then we can be raised out of our lives of sin. And and it works the other way too. If we can be raised by God out of our death in sin, then that is a proof. That is proof that he has overcome sin and by extension death as the wages of sin. So we are raised together with him. We are inseparable from him. Our, the defeat of death, our, the defeat of sin in our lives is inseparable 
with the defeat of death that was rendered at the resurrection. The presence of one is an indication of the truth of the other. Paul writes in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. The death that Christ died is our death. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we were raised through the power of Christ, it is no longer our lives that we live, but it is Christ that lives in us and through us. His resurrection is more than just this historical oddity. It's more than just this footnote that somebody says, hey, this doesn't really quite add up. But it's a call for us to stop placing our trust in the things of this world because they cannot save. And to instead place our trust in him. Modern medicine, in a lot of cases, can heal a broken body. But the greater brokenness that we see in those around us are not broken bodies, but they're broken souls. Only Christ can heal those broken souls. Political systems can restrain human impulses and dictate behavior, but it is only through Christ that we can be given right thoughts and attitudes and desires. Our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. John gives us a a beautiful illustration of that in the life of Peter. If you know anything about Peter, he was a fisherman. He was a little rough around the edges. He was brash. He was arrogant. He was one of those you know, ready, fire, aim sort of people. He was always kind of running around half cocked, ready to go. And he tells Jesus at one point, I will die for you. I will die before I will turn my back on you. And he was the one that as Jesus was being arrested, pulls a sword, starts swinging it around. He's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. Cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus heals it. It's a cool story. And as Jesus was being led away, Peter followed them. And as he waited outside while those false trials were going on, he was questioned. Hey, you know that Jesus guy, right? The one who's inside? What does Peter do? I, I don't know what you're talking about. And again, hey, didn't I see you in the garden when we arrested him? No, no, that, that was somebody else. I'm sure that you were with them. No, it wasn't me. I don't know him. Three times he denied Christ. I would rather die than turn my back on you. He was afraid of the consequences. He was afraid of what might happen if he were to be identified with Christ. And as the rooster crowed after that third time, just as Jesus said that it would, Peter realized the brokenness of his own heart. And he wept. 
You see, he had been trusting in his own power. He had been trusting in his wits. He had been trusting in his ability to lie his way out of a situation to keep himself safe rather than placing his trust in God. He had seen all of the miracles and he believed that Jesus was the Christ, that this was the Messiah, but he still failed. He still failed. And I look at that and I say, Peter saw all of these things. He walked with Jesus for three years, saw the dead raised. And still he failed when he was put to the test. What hope do I have? In John 21, verse 15, the story picks up. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said, to them the, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter comes away from this encounter with the risen Christ, humbled and broken and forgiven and redeemed. His sin had still happened, but the effects of it, the consequences of it, the shame, the self-loathing, the broken relationship between him and his Savior, and ultimately his death in those sins, those were all erased. Peter doubted when it counted the most. He ran and he lied, but he was forgiven. The power that was evident in the risen Christ had given him a new heart. And we see that because just a few weeks later, at Pentecost, Peter speaks. And he speaks to a crowd that wouldn't have been all that different from the crowd that he was so afraid of. And he speaks with a power and with an authority that was way beyond his station in life. He spoke with words that were direct and were confrontational, words that got Christ crucified and would later on get men stoned. He ends up and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was the result? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He spoke and did not deny Christ, but affirmed him. And he spoke words that led thousands to place their trust in Christ on that day. So what was it? What happened to Peter between denying him three times in the span of a few minutes and standing up in front of thousands and proclaiming that this is the Messiah who you killed? What happened? It was the resurrection. The wonder of seeing his Savior brought to life and the grace of his forgiveness were enough to completely rewrite the story of this man's life. The resurrection was proof of his ability to have a new life. And his new life was proof to these people of the resurrection that it it had really happened, that it was the promise of the one to come. See, because this new life that he lived, he didn't live by his own power, but he was living it with Christ's power. He was living it not for his own purposes, not for his own safety, but for Christ's purposes. He was living not in himself, but he was living in Christ. He had not just a new life, but he had a hope, a living hope in Christ. And so as we are called into life, out of death. It is not a life that is in our own power, for our own purposes, or according to our own desires, but we are called to live in Christ's power for the purpose of expressing his glory to the world according to his desire to glorify the Father. And so this new life that we lead not only shows the world around us the power that raised Christ from the dead, but it also shows us the same power that will one day raise us from the dead. On that day, those who have trusted in Christ will be judged by, will be judged according to what Christ has done. While those who have persisted in trusting in themselves, those who have persisted in trusting in their power in their knowledge of how the world should work, will be called to answer for their sin. For every angry word, for every lustful thought, each willful act, an act of defiance and rebellion against a holy God. Each act of rebellion being a crime that warrants death. But there is hope. In Romans 5, it says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we persisted in rebelling against him, while we stood there and said, no, my way, Christ died for us. So if we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? As sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So today, if your life is one of death, if your life is one of being dead in your sin, of being enslaved to sin, the resurrection is a promise. It's a hope that you don't need to be dead any longer. It is a hope that is testified to by the resurrection of Christ. And it is a hope that is testified to by the changed lives of his followers. So no matter the extent of your sin, no matter how many laws you've broken, no matter how you have sinned, all of that is summed up in one idea. You were dead in your sins. The full depth, the full extent of your sin has the same outcome as everyone else's. Death. Each one of us, the sin that is in our lives carries the exact same outcome. Death. And just as we are unable to change anything about our own physical death, we are unable to change our state of spiritual death. It is a hopeless, inescapable reality. Sin is death. Sin is the cause of all of the hurt and all of the anguish and all of the broken relationships and all of the broken people. But the power of sin was broken on the cross and the power of the grave was overcome when he came out of that tomb. That same power that was at work to raise him from the dead is the same power that is being exercised towards us who believe to raise us from our spiritual death. That resurrection doesn't come through our attempts at being good, but it comes only as an undeserved gift from God. So will you continue to pursue the path that leads only to death? Or will you turn away from the sin that enslaves you? If, will you turn away from the sin that has trapped you in the grave and place your hope in the one thing that can release you, the one thing that can save you? Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. Paul writes to the Corinthians. <clears throat> he says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Last of all, as to one un untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul considers this good news. He considers this gospel to be the single most important thing that he could write to this church in Corinth about. And he says, it is only by God's grace that I have amounted to anything at all. It is only by God's grace that my work has been proven to be worth anything. And Paul is pointing to that work and saying that God's grace towards me has not been in vain. Today, God's grace towards you does not need to be in vain. Is that power that was at work in Paul's life, in Peter's life, is that power what needs to be at work in your life? Is this new life something that you are being called to? If your answer to that is no, I would encourage you to test that. In the coming week, remember each time that you speak with anger. Remember each time that you look with lust. Remember each time that you place your feelings and your desires above those of another person. Tally those up and see just how selfish you are. Tally those up and see just how hateful you are. Tally those up and see how unfaithful you are. All of these things are an affront to the holiness of God. And if you would try to satisfy his demands on your own power by your own works, there cannot be any of these things in your life. If you would attempt to satisfy God on your own, none of these things can exist for you. But if you're looking at that and you're saying, I can't do that. There's no way. You look at it and you say, yes, I need that new life. If your heart has been convicted of your sin, if your heart has been broken by this world, if you know that you are not enough, if you know that you never can be enough, there is a way. There is hope. There is joy. There is truth. And there is life. Because the price for that was paid on the cross and the promise was fulfilled in the empty tomb. And so turn away today from how you have been walking and instead follow after Christ. Follow his example and seek after him. We exist as a community. Ideally, because we are a group of people who are attempting to do that. Attempting, failing, often. But we are attempting to follow his example. We are attempting to seek after him. And we are attempting to teach the world around us, to show them the same thing that John was trying to show us, that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that they might have life in his name. And so we invite you to come alongside of us and to join us as we do this together. We're not perfect. We don't have everything right. But we gather together so that we might journey together, so that we might be sojourners together through this life, 
walking in the joy of our new lives, encouraging and exhorting each other. There is a way, there is hope, there is joy, there is truth, and there is life. The call today is simple. Understand that you are dead in your sin. Understand that Christ was raised from the dead so that you might be raised from that death in your sin. Believe in what he has done for you. Trust in him. Repent and believe. That is the simple call of the gospel, that you are not enough, you can't be enough, but Christ was enough for you. All that is necessary is for us to stop pursuing our own way, place our trust in him and follow after him. We never do it perfectly. You'll see that, won't you? but we try in the hope that one day, that one day the work that he began in us will be brought to completion and we will know him fully. We will be made fully like him and we will spend all eternity rejoicing in that, rejoicing in the grace that he has been working in our lives and his grace towards us has not been in vain. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy. We are unworthy of the grace that you have bestowed on us, Father. But yet you bestowed it anyway. You gave it to us anyway. At great cost. A cost that we cannot possibly understand. Our minds are too small. And we can't possibly understand the wonders that you have in store for us, Father. But we, in our limited capacity, know this. That we are insufficient. We do not have enough. We are not strong enough. We are not good enough. We are not obedient enough. And it is only by your grace that we can come before you. It is only by your grace that you have drawn us to you. It is only by your grace that the brokenness of our hearts can be healed. It is only by your grace that we can be raised from our lives of sin. Father, I ask that you would be at work in our lives, 
that we would show the reality of your resurrection to the world around us by the way that you show the resurrection, that ha- the new life that happens in our lives, Father. And help us to boldly proclaim that you are the Messiah. Help us to boldly proclaim that that all who hear might believe and all who believe would have life in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.